we were, I mean, this we, we captured this in the middle of the night. So I've got the Milky Way above me and then I've got a galaxy just right below me. And I've never felt so at one with an environment of me just paddling my hardest, trying to keep up with this shark. It's swimming along real gentle, like not giving a crap about me. It looked like glittering diamonds were just rolling off its back and leaving kind of a trail. And it's just, it, to me, it's magic. And that's part of why I do what I do is because I want to preserve that magic. So I'm not telling my kids about it through a storybook. I can just take them to see it and experience it on their own. Welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. I'm your host, Byron Pace. It is the 31st of March, 2022. For those of you who are new to the show, this show is out every two weeks. It alternates between the episode that you're going to be listening to now, which is the Living With Nature series, and a longer form, more conversational uh, podcast where I speak to a whole array of guests from around the planet, from biologists to explorers, hunters, fishers, and everything you can possibly think of in between. Um, Along with hosting this podcast, I am the conservation director for Modern Huntsman, which is a biannual publication dedicated to sustainable use of wild resources and conservation. You can get the latest volume, volume eight now on modernhuntsman.com, which is focused on conservation issues on the continent of Africa. Uh, I am also a filmmaker, which actually is what takes up most of my year. And you can see that work on byronpace.com or follow me on the various socials at byronjpace where you can see the photography and film work posted on a kind of semi-regular basis when I'm around and when I have time and when I remember. I'm pretty bad at posting on social. But anyway, to this episode, you're going to be hearing from, and oh my goodness, I... I enjoyed this show listening back to it to edit it. So I hope that you're going to love it. Uh, This show is with Melissa Cristina Marquez. Uh, She is a marine biologist specializing in shark science. She has a column in Forbes, is a TV presenter for Nat Geo, and you may have seen her in GQ, giving TEDx talks on Discovery Channel, or maybe on Good Morning America. So she does quite a lot of stuff. Uh, She works incredibly hard. She is an amazing science communicator, and it is a privilege to have her on the show. Just before we dive into the questions, a shout out to the top tier Patreon supporters, which this month include Richard McNeil, Ronnie Speakman, Avadi Contracting.co.uk, James Marchington, the guys at South Asher Stalking, Thomas Cameron, Mark Zabrowski, and Colin Knight. If you would like to support the podcast, and it really, really helps, head over to patreon.com forward slash Byron Pace. And with all of that said, please welcome Melissa Christina Marquez to the show. Melissa, welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. It is fantastic to have you on today. We are currently sat uh, at the end of the One with Nature conference here in Hungary. So we're not even re- we're not recording this in in well, actually, I was going to say in the states, but actually, <laughs> you kind of like you live in a different parts of the world. You actually live in Australia, but you're going back to the states now or in Scotland. We're in the host country of the One with Nature conference, uh, and I've had the the privilege of getting to know you the last couple of days and you've been part of some really fascinating conversations and I thought you were going to be an ideal person for this living living with nature series that we're doing on the show. Um, So by way of background, maybe just before we dive into our five questions that I'm going to ask you, just give me the the kind of two-minute rundown of who you are and what you do. 
Yeah, so my name is Melissa Cristina Marquez. I am a shark scientist PhD candidate who looks at shark habitat use, so figuring out why they are where they are, but also our relationship with sharks, so how that's evolved over the years and what kind of factors really go into our perception of sharks and how that in turn sways conservation initiatives either being successful or not successful. So my background is completely marine, so being with the One With Nature uh, Expo here in Hungary, not being marine really whatsoever, uh, is really cool as Fish a Fish out of person. water, maybe? Literally. I see what <laughs> you did there. That is so bad. I'm going to have to cut that out. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> it, it stays. It, it stays. Because that's exactly how I felt. Yeah. I was just like, in sometimes I was kind of like, what am I doing here? But listening to all of these conversations, it's so interesting how parallel the marine and terrestrial management issues are and it just kind of really goes back to showing you we are one planet so whatever happens in one ecosystem is going to affect the other and vice versa yeah they are connected exactly. because we are nature exactly yeah. beautiful <laughs> i mean being a shark biologist sounds incredibly boring so i don't think this is going to be a great interview <laughs> um so question one for you how do you connect to nature on a regular basis I think whatever you're going to say is going to be cool. <laughs> I have that feeling. <laughs> I mean, for me, I'm really lucky that uh, this past year, especially, I've been living aboard a boat. And so if I ever felt like disconnected from nature, all I had to do was just open up a porthole and stick my head out and there's the Atlantic Ocean. Wow. Uh, and for me, it really is the ocean. I, I come from the Caribbean. I'm from Puerto Rico and my first memories are of the ocean. And so that's kind of my happy place. And in Australia, I'm really lucky that I have the ocean right there, but I also have the outback. I'm able to go to hikes every week uh, and outside of my window, we've got this really beautiful uh, eucalyptus tree that is home to a bunch of native Australian animals. So it's just as easy as me sticking my head out, breathing in some fresh air and hoping that the koala doesn't fall into my bedroom. <laughs> uh, I mean, how did you connect with nature when you were younger? What was your, what was your connection there? We always went to the beach mm -hmm. like that. I mean, that's been my happy place for forever. And so my first memories are of me harassing hermit crabs and probably killing way too many. Uh, and, you know, swimming with fishes, um, going out into the rainforest and listening to those sounds and running up and down the stairs as we're going from one waterfall to the other. And so the, the door was open by your parents? Always, yeah. To, it, to nature. Yeah, that's how it, you found it. It wasn't even so much my parents. It was more the environment environment that I was in. Okay. Because uh, you kind of existed in it. Yeah. Because yeah. my mom's a scientist, but she's more in like the chemistry side. And mm -hmm. my dad does finances and math and he, his happy place is a computer which is fine my dad did finance too but it wasn't his happy place <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah. i feel like that's a trend yeah i think it is um but yeah it was them kind of being like go and i think this is kind of like our generation might be one of the last ones where our parents were like right go forth get your um, your knees skinned and your toes dirty and then come back and yeah. that that Eat was food with dirt on your hands because exactly good for you. mud cakes delicious yeah oh amazing so it, it, it's been with you your your whole life really. exactly a, a desire and so what was it specifically other than being beside marine environments that took you to sharks funnily enough other than they're really cool yeah they are amazing but i'm biased in saying yeah. that i guess uh so when we moved from mexico to the states 
uh, it was during the summertime and my parents kind of plopped me in front of the TV and they were like, right, there's more channels here than there ever was in Mexico. Don't break anything. Just stay as we unpack the house. And I flipped the channel to national or to discovery channel mm -hmm. and watched shark week. Okay. And it was a great white shark, like breaching out of the water and it's all graceful gloriness and that to me kind of cinched it i was like i don't know what that is but i want to study it like that that's, that's, that's it a, so that i mean that speaks incredibly powerfully to how influential me media can be but particularly film or documentaries oh 100 and the thing that really struck out to me it was actually one of the like air jaws series that they have it wasn't scary mu music in the background it was like just that awe-inspiring kind of music when okay. you sit back and you watch an animal in its element doing what it's supposed to do. Because sharks are often painted as the enemy. Exactly, exactly. And so for me, that kind of just captured my attention. And I remember telling my parents, like, I'm going to be a shark scientist. I want to study them. And they were like, okay, next week you're going to say you want to be a fireman or something exactly. like that. And I never got out of the phase. And you went unquote. from that to actually being involved in Shark Week. Yeah, yeah. So dreams, full circle. Do, dreams do come true. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's pretty freaking cool. It, that you went from a yeah. kid watching that and then you're like, yeah, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna be in it. <laughs> it that's was, amazing. Well done. That's incredible. It's really cool for me, at least, because it's funny, you know, being that kid and watching all of these, I never saw a woman shark scientist. So now I get to be that in that position where I get to inspire other little kids, like little Mellies, essentially yeah. <laughs> being like, Oh, I want to be a shark scientist, but I don't know it. And then they see me and they're like, Oh, I can do hold it. Hold on. Yeah. She looks like me. Exactly. So yeah. yeah, it's, I'm really, really um, proud of that. That's so cool. It's amazing. Cause all the scientists or science communicators I know in the marine environment who like, that's their thing. I'm just racking my brains. I think they're all women actually that I know. Which is so cool. There, you know what? Yeah, like our, our mutual connection. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Shout out to Sarah. Yeah. Um, yeah, there is some powerhouse science communicating women out there. And I think it's because, to toot our own horns, we're really good at storytelling and bringing in that emotion and capturing people and bringing them along to whatever story we kind of want to weave. And that's especially important in nature. You know, it's not just uh, storytelling of the mouth through words but it's through film it's through media uh, so I think we're quite good at that and all it takes is going on social media looking at any of those accounts and you're going to be blown away so question two yeah, we spend a lot of time uh, talking about negative things in the conservation world do you have a, a good example of a company or a person or organization who's really helping to fix that uh, we're like we've been talking about disconnect. I was saying the other day. I like this the the phrase decoupling mm. of of people and nature, and it's helping to bring that back together to recouple the the urban masses, which is largely what we're speaking about in terms of disconnect with nature again. Is, is there any sort of standout examples where that's working? Yeah, you know, there's quite a lot of them uh, in Australia where they are starting to bring the scientists, the stakeholders, the policymakers, but also the public and not just the generalized public, but specifically the aboriginals, so the First Nations, into this kind of conversation about conservation, uh, which I think is really special because the relationship between Australia and its First Nations is very complex. I mean, we go on about hours for it. And so I think having them be a part of this conversation of getting them involved with the skills and the tools to be able 
to not only showcase their traditional knowledge, but also help sign like quote unquote modern scientists mm -hmm. uh, do research and successfully implement some conservation initiatives there, I think is really special and something that other communities around the world could kind of look through. Uh, I know that uh, it's been done with quite a few different animals um, and also fa uh, flora as well, such as like uh, planting of trees uh, from the shark side. I know there's quite a few different communities there uh, in regards to like sawfish mm -hmm. and the local uh, traditional communities there and having that open dialogue uh, or any of the other kind of endemic sharks that you only find in Australia. Uh, so it's, it, I think it's a step in the right direction and something that other countries can look to and see it as an example to follow. Yeah, I've... Uh... I increasingly see an acknowledgement that mm. integrating traditional ecological knowledge with the modern science is accepted as essential. Yeah. And of course, historically, it was the case that a lot of that traditional knowledge was kind of hijacked by scientists who would parachute into places, use local communities for whatever end it was that they were trying to, and then pull out of there and go and do whatever science it was they were doing without there ever being any kind of reciprocal feedback. Exactly. But that, you know, that's, I, th I think largely that's been acknowledged now, maybe not in all circles, but I, I see it being talked about much more, which is really positive. Yeah. And, you know, it is something that I know quite a lot of people uh, in the science communication groups are, or circles are talking about parachute science and, how it's not okay in this day and age mm -hmm. to go into an area, use that traditional knowledge or the local people's knowledge, uh, exploit that kind of work, and then leave with the science and never bring back what they found um, and how that can benefit or uh, what can be done in that community to better coexist with that nature, both the wild spaces, but also the uh, the wild animals in there as well. And so I'm glad that people are having those conversations. It kind of feels like, well... Finally. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. Um, okay, if I move on to the next question. I, I, I imagine that it's going to be something to do with sharks. I might be wrong. <laughs> I might be wrong. Um, is there a, a conservation story happening right now that you are particularly passionate about and you want to tell the world about? The thing that I'm actually really passionate about right now, outside of sharks, of course, uh, is blue carbon, Okay. funnily enough. Uh, so for people who don't know what the term blue carbon is, is essentially there's coastal ecosystems such as mangroves and seagrass fed, uh, beds that will intake carbon and store it essentially um, both in like the actual roots and the plant matter itself, but also the soil. Yeah. Uh, and it's communities now having a conversation about how they can use that uh, to protect specific ecosystems mm -hmm. being like okay by having tradable value yeah by having tradable value and it's that whole I mean one kind of conversation that we've been having at this expo is do nature services slash resources have a price yeah. and sometimes for some people that's what it takes those dollar signs for them to be like oh okay now i see why this ecosystem is worth having or yeah. worth protecting what is the cost of not having it? it is how i quite often frame it because it's yeah. like whoa hold on a second you mean if the forest isn't there, my water bill's going to go up 10 times because it's not doing the natural flow of what ecosystem services do by cleaning my water? It's that kind of thing, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And so I think it's kind of a up-and-coming conservation 
success because I think it's getting people who normally don't think about protecting uh, ecosystems and habitats to start thinking and start having that conversation. Uh, to me, it's still quite a new topic and I think it's still an evolving theory. Uh, so I'm really interested in seeing how it grows in the next couple of years. Um, and I'm actually hopefully going to be a part of that conversation oh, in the cool. Caribbean with science communication efforts of taking that the, the most important kind of takeaway messages and translating them into Spanish. So at least that community also oh, has that uh, ability to understand, okay, what is happening? How does it impact me? How can I get involved? Well, I will, I will look out for that. <laughs> So, second last question. Is there a person who particularly inspires you in the sort of the greater outdoor space? I mean, it doesn't even necessarily have to be connected to conservation if it happens not to be, but in terms of connecting with nature, is there was there was there somebody growing up or is there someone now that you're like everyone else needs to know about this person because they're amazing and they're inspiring? I mean, I could be really like just cliche and be like David Attenborough yeah. because I mean that voice is iconic and he kind of is like in the mind set uh, or in the back of my mind when everybody like, knows Big D though. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the funny thing is like what got me really into habitat use of animals uh was a cartoon character okay so in the united states there was a show that's called the wild thornberries and it was about this family that went gallivanting around the world and they were filmmakers essentially and the daughter uh saves this warthog from a trap and it turns out to be a shaman who gives her a gift which is the ability to talk to animals I want that gift. I know. Every time someone asks, like, what's your superpower? Or what superpower you talk want? I'm like, talk to animals. I want to ask I so be many Dr. questions. I want to Yes. <laughs> yes. And so the show was really good at not only showcasing the environment that she was in, but also the animals and the intricacies. Like, she ended up talking to lions and to jackals and, like, other animals that are, quote, unquote, villains mm -hmm. except they never talked about sharks which i, I have a bone to pick about right that but still i know do a new series i know i'm like hello we need to redo this um but showed the quote-unquote villains in a different way in a different light as well and that to me really got me into uh figuring out the different perspective of animals as well being like wait a minute are they actually the quote-unquote bad guys or do we just not know enough about them that we're painting them this way because they go against the grain of what we think they should be acting like? So that was probably one of the biggest influences Amazing. was a cartoon character. <laughs> it just shows you where influences can come from, though. Yeah, and again, how, how important it is to think maybe out the box, to use a phrase that's used all the time, about how we communicate. Yeah, definitely. Kids cartoons. Kids cartoons. And actually, talking about kids, I mean, you have a kids book. I do. I have two. Yeah. Um, well, we have two people here who have kids books. <laughs> Sarah Roberts as well. Yeah. She has a kids book out. Yeah, or I have three, um, I think, now. That's true. She's got yeah. quite a few. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've got a trio of books. Two are already out. Um, the third is going to be coming out April 2022. Um, but they are about those miss. In Miss, uh, so was the cartoon inspiration for that? Sort of, actually, kind of, yeah. sort yeah. of was. Um, and I mean, my own like run in and passion with uh, misunderstood animals mm -hmm. is also quite a big inspiration for it. But yeah, that's I, I believe that we can communicate really important 
conservation messages to different audiences through different means and one of them is kids a lot of times people try to like quote unquote dumb things down for kids they're smart kids are super smart so why would you not give them a concept such as like say overfishing or illegal fishing or deforestation give it to them in a way that they can understand and educate them really early on so as they go throughout their world they have that nugget in their back of their brain and then they can start learning more and more and more about them because one thing that i've learned about with kids is they're sponges as soon as something captures their curiosity they're going to go down a rabbit hole and it's so much easier to do it now with the age of the internet where you can just google uh illegal fishing or deforestation and you just learn more and more and more Mm. and more so my books i kind of hope are a gateway into the curiosity of what is out there in nature and who knows maybe inspire some people to become wildlife conservationists i love it well if we get a chance to meet again in person i need to get a signed copy of one of your yes books. definitely <laughs> <laughs> that, that needs to be on the list okay last question um is there of all the cool stuff that you've done around the world now is there one memory of the most incredible interaction with nature that yeah. you have something that sort of defined or was a, a pivotal point in who you are yeah so i think th- there's a bunch of little ones on the way for me becoming who i am but i think probably the two most that keep me going when wildlife news and uh troubles kind of get you down uh one of them is back in 2019 uh filming with a nat geo show which I just got confirmation it's going to air sometime this year, which I'm very excited about. Oh, (laughs) amazing. We got to go back to my home, so Puerto Rico, and I got to kayak in a clear clear glass kayak uh, in one of the bioluminescent bays. (gasps) No. I am so desperate to go there. It's it's amazing. Mosquito Bay, um, or in Vieques, is just absolutely incredible. But the really cool thing was – there was so much bioluminescence, and this was after Hurricane Maria in 2017. Uh, there was so much bioluminescence, you could see every single animal, including a shark. Wow. And it, we were, I mean, this we, we captured this in the middle of the night, so I've got the Milky Way above me, and then I've got a galaxy just right below me, and I've never felt so at one with an environment of me just paddling my hardest, trying to keep up with this shark. It's swimming along real gentle, like not giving a crap about me. It looked like glittering diamonds were just rolling off its back and leaving kind of a trail. And it's just, it, to me, it's magic. And that's part of why I do what I do is because I want to preserve that magic. So I'm not telling my kids about it through a storybook. I can just take them to see it and experience it on their own. And I think if we keep protecting little pockets of magic through the wilderness that we have in our society, through many different uh, conservation management tools, I think we're going to leave the planet a lot better than what we've kind of been seeing how it is right now. So that. Every time that I, I'm down, I think of that little piece of magic and I'm like, right, that's what I'm working for. And what a beautiful way to end the last question. And the takeaway from that is find a beautiful piece of magic and protect it.
pretty much. <laughs> Melissa, thank you so much for taking the time after a really hectic couple of days where we've basically been busy and nonstop since since we all arrived um, to podcasts on the last couple of hours uh, that we're here together. So I really appreciate your time and thank you so much for taking part in the symposium and uh, helping me up on stage today when we were presenting to all of the members. I always got time for you, Byron. Thank you so much for having me. 